Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It is pure joy to be back at Southeastern. I love this seminary. I love this faculty. I love this president. And I get to wear jeans. It's just great. <laughs> so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, or somebody around you does, let me invite you to find Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. So I want to do something somewhat unique this morning. It's a bit out of the box for me. It's something I, I hope and pray will encourage you particularly as a group of seminary students, a seminary I love, and a sem seminary where I feel uh, comfortable being a bit vulnerable and sharing some things that uh, I just wouldn't share anywhere else. So a year ago, I was serving as pastor of the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. And almost exactly a year ago, the Lord began taking me on a journey that I never would have planned that led to where I am now serving. And so as I prayed for you in preparation of how I might best serve you during these moments, I just have this picture of brothers and sisters all across this room, some of whom over the next couple of months and over others of whom who over the next year or two or three or four or five, the Lord is going to lead to all sorts of different positions in all sorts of different places. And I'm guessing he's going to lead many of you to positions or places that you never would have planned. So as I prayed for you, I sensed a desire to share with you out of the overflow of how God in His grace and mercy by His Spirit has led me. So to go a bit out of the box from pure exposition of a text, which is the steady diet we need most, and so I asked Dr. Aiken not to critique this particular sermon on its expositional value, although I hope it will be true, obviously, to God's Word, just to make sure that's clear. Um, but I want to share so tonight I'm going to preach from Acts. This morning I want to share a bit of my testimony from the last year in light of the book of Acts in a way that I hope might encourage you as our Lord leads you in the coming days and months and years. Because that, that's just it, right? There is a level of mystery when it comes to how God leads our lives. Like how do you know when God is leading you to a certain place or a certain position at a certain time. And just look at the word, Acts chapter 13. We're familiar with this passage. Verse 1 says, They were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So just stop right there. Don't you read that and just wonder, how did he say that? How? How did that happen? It's a prayer meeting. Did, did he just say it to Barnabas and Saul? Did he say it to others? And if so, how did, he, how did he say it? In such a way that verse 3 says, After fasting and praying, the church laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, sent out by the Holy Spirit. So how did that happen in Acts 13? It's one of those places in Scripture. Don't you just, wouldn't you just love a glimpse? Just be a fly on the wall in Antioch. How, how did this happen? And then turn over a couple chapters to Acts chapter 16. Look at Acts chapter 16. So here's Paul now having been sent out a second time on a second missionary journey from Antioch. And the Bible says that he and Timothy and Silas, listen to verse 6, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. How? Don't you wonder? How does the Lord forbid you from speaking his word in a particular place? And we know it wasn't just because they may have faced resistance in Asia, because they were facing resistance in tons of places. So how did the Holy Spirit say, no, not Asia right now? And then verse 7, when they came to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. How did he not allow them? How did the Spirit not allow them to go? Was it during their quiet times? Was it one of their quiet times? Was it all their quiet times? On the same morning, they came together for breakfast. They're like, I don't think we should go there. Like, how did this work? And then, listen to what we read next in verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. The man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there you go, a vision in the night. But even that, like how do you know if you're having a vision from God or if you just ate something funny the night before and you're having a weird dream? Like most dreams I've had, I don't trust very much. <laughs> do you? You base your life around your dreams? So then turn over, turn over to Acts 20. Look at Acts 20. Remember when, when Paul, he's spending time with these leaders in the church at Ephesus? On his way to Jerusalem, listen to what he says to them. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit. So how? How does the Holy Spirit constrain you to go to a certain place? He keeps going, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Which, again, don't miss this, means that just because something is going to be hard or involve resistance, that doesn't mean the Lord is not leading you to it. That's actually part of the means by which Paul knows the Lord's leading him to it in this situation. He goes on to say in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's going to Jerusalem. But here's what's interesting. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 21, and pick up there in verse 3. See what happens. Verse 3, when we had come in the sight of Cyprus, 
Leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, now I'm really confused. So Paul, constrained by the Spirit, is going to Jerusalem because the Lord is constraining him to go there. But then here's disciples at Tyre that through the Spirit are telling him not to go. Get farther down to verse 10. Listen to what happens there. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. (laughs) So you got this back and forth between spirit-led Paul and spirit-led disciples and prophets. And in the end, they conclude seemingly against what some of the disciples would have said was the best way to move forward. The Lord's will be done. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, and we know he's arrested there. Which leads, okay, now turn to the next book in the Bible, Romans, Romans chapter 15, where Paul, on his journey to Jerusalem, so actually in the city of Corinth, before he goes down to Ephesus, which we just read about, Paul makes a case for why he's going to Jerusalem and then wants to go to Rome in order to let the church of Rome help him get the gospel to Spain. So fast forward with me to the end of Romans 15, uh, look at what Paul says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. In other words, I've done what the Spirit of Christ led me to do in this region. But, verse 20 Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I have no longer, no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So get the picture. Sum it all up, Paul, led by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit, and all he had done came to the conclusion that the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem from there to Rome in order to get the gospel to Spain where they'd never heard it. And a question I'm asking as I'm reading all of this is how did did all of that happen? How does the Spirit lead? How did Paul come to the conclusions he came to about where he would spend his life for the spread of the gospel? And the reason I'm asking that question is because that's the question I'm asking all the time in my life. Lord, how are you leading me? Where are you leading me to spend my life for the spread of the gospel? And I'm guessing, I'm hoping, it's the question you're asking in your life constantly. Where is the best use of my life for the spread of your gospel? And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a little glimpse into how God, by His Spirit, constrained me to to the place where I find myself now. Constrained me. And I know that may sound like strong language to some, but that's it. I really believe God constrained me 
to go where I find myself now. And my hope is, in sharing a little bit about how he did that, that you might be encouraged in how he is constraining you. Not because, so I want to be clear, not because your journey will be the same as mine, because the Lord will lead in uh, the exact same way in your life as he has done in mine, but my hope is, share this journey and then just leave you with three simple words of encouragement based on what we see here in being constrained by the Spirit of God. So, it was four or five years ago, the uh, search team at that time at the IMV approached me and others about the possibility of stepping into this role that I now find myself in. And the Lord clearly said, no, no, that's a, say how? Well, that's a whole other story. Um, but the Lord clearly said, no, in such a way that uh, uh, I remember our executive pastor when he was coming to the church at Brook Hills and he said, now, David, are you going to be around? Uh, this was just a few years ago. He said, are you going to be around uh, for a long time? I said, as far as I know, um, I said, I have no desire to pastor another church. Uh, I, now, there's always a chance I could move overseas, but the only other thing I could even think would be uh, IMB, leading IMB, but that was such a clear no. So I was like, come on, man, I'm going to be here a long time. So, and I said that with integrity, with total integrity. But then you fast forward a couple of years, and uh, I and a couple other pastors were invited to go to a, a trustee meeting with the IMB and encourage the IMB to think through new avenues for mission sending. When I look at the IMB, it's really breathtaking, beyond words, what God has entrusted to Southern Baptist. It's, I mean, every year, $300 million and about almost 5,000 missionaries all aimed at getting the gospel to those who've never heard it. It's just an awesome reality. At the same time, I knew going into that trust me that there was there was struggle at the IMB in this sense. And now I know even clearer the exact numbers. I mean, we, we as IMB uh, in 2009 were at 5,600 missionaries. Uh, today we're at 4,800 and we're fast on our way to 4,200. And much of the reason is because uh, our funding is not matching those who are wanting to go. And so we are just through natural attrition and through telling people no. Last year we were about uh, $21 million. We spent out more than we brought in. So I, I look, and one of the things we were, the, I and a couple other pastors were talking with uh, trustees about was the need to take more of a bottom-up approach to missions instead of a top-down approach to missions. So uh, I think there's a temptation in the denominational structure in particular to look at missions from the top down as if the IMB exists to do mission among unreached peoples and churches exist to send the IMB, uh, uh, send money and send people and we'll take care of mission for you. And that, that really misses the whole point. Uh, I think the whole point we see in Scripture is a local church at the center of the Great Commission. Antioch's worshiping, fasting, and praying. The Spirit saying, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And as Antioch here, Antioch there, I, I want to see 40,000 Antiochs across the SBC and then far beyond the SBC who are worshiping and fasting and praying. And this is word of encouragement to every single person who the Lord will lead, constrain to pastor a church. George Pentecost said years ago, to the pastor belongs the privilege and responsibility of the missionary problem. And basically what he was saying is, yes, mission boards, agencies should exist and do what they will, but it's the job of every pastor of a local church to fan a flame for God's global glory in that local church. And until pastors are shepherding Antiochs, then 
The IMB just spins wheels. Like it, does, it, it will not have the effect that we are designed by God to have on the spread of the gospel to unreached peoples. So anyway, we were just encouraging uh, IMB leadership to think along those lines. Well, fast forward a couple of months, and I found myself in Dubai and, uh, and was spending time with some of our missionaries there, and we were having a question and answer time at one point and uh, just some dialogue about all kinds of different issues. And one of the missionaries asked me, he said, well, with funding down back home, what do you think uh, the IMB needs to do in order to be able to keep the number of missionaries we have on the field there? And as soon as I heard the question, my heart just broke. Like, surely that's not the question we're asking. Our goal is not just to keep the number of missionaries on the field we have there now. We gotta multiply exponentially the number of missionaries who are on the field. Like, praise God, I, I read in IMB history, there's in, 20, uh, in, in all of IMB history, 170 years, we've had about 20,000 missionaries, which is glorious. But the reality is, we need 20,000 now. We need 20,000 now, and it's possible. It's possible. You look at Moravians in Christian history. I was just in Winston-Salem last night and talking with people, Moravians are so crazy. But anyway, Moravians. So the Moravians, uh, one out of 92 of them were crossing cultures for the spread of the gospel. One out of 92. And if you took that and applied it just to Southern Baptist churches, I mean, they say there's 16 million people in Southern Baptist churches. Let's say we could find 10 million of those people alive and in a church. Let's, let's just be honest. So let's say we could find 10 million of them, and it'll make it easier on the math. If that ratio was going out from our churches, that'd be over 100,000 missionaries. But we're not even thinking in those kind of terms. We've got to think in those kind of terms. So, so I'm wrestling through this and my interaction with some different folks in the IMB. Well, fast forward then to almost exactly a year ago when I found myself uh, in the mountains, Himalayas of Nepal, and the Lord did an unusual work in my heart and life. Um, on those trails, I mean, when you, not just the poverty and the sex trafficking and everything else, but, and I've shared about this in different settings, but just uh, when you walk five days and every single person you meet has never heard of Jesus before you, you get there, you just realize this is not acceptable that there's this many people in the world who haven't even heard what we just sang about. And so at the beginning of that trip, um, I had taken a group of our pastors there because we were praying about sending a church planning team to work in those mountains, and we were praying about who might lead that team. Well, about midway through uh, walking out of those mountains, I'm looking at the guy who's rooming with me, and I'm like, hey, maybe you need to lead this team. And then by the time we get out of the mountains, I'm starting to think, maybe I need to lead this team. And... Uh, such that I began asking the guys who live there in Nepal, uh, what does it look like to live here? And what about this, what about this? Hey, can we get down to the city? Can I come visit your house? It was really kind of invasive, but I was trying to ask all the questions that I knew my wife was gonna ask me when I got home. And I said, uh, babe, uh, I think it's Kathmandu. And uh, she'd never been there before. She's been to India, so I was just thinking, all right, I'll just tell her, just think India, but dirtier. And, uh, <laughs> I got to have something else to go on. So, uh, so anyway, I'm asking all these questions, wondering, Lord, are you leading me here? And so we get out of those mountains, and uh, that morning, 
Uh, we had one day left in Kathmandu before we flew out, and I roll over, and I wake up in the morning, roll over uh, out of my bed, and I pick up my phone to see if I missed any messages from home, and uh, the first message I have on my phone is an email from Tom Ellis, former president of the IMD, saying that he was uh, stepping down and praying that God would raise up somebody else to lead in that capacity. I just put my head on my pillow, knowing that they had talked with me before, not knowing if, if they would talk with me again, thinking it would be a lot easier if they did not. Um, but I just began to think, well, now why would I be willing to move to Nepal and not be willing to consider mobilizing tens of thousands more people to get to Nepal and places like it. And so I just fell out of my bed and on my knees. I've been memorizing parts of Luke 17 during those trails. And Luke 17, verse 10, so you also, after you have done all that you've been commanded to do, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. And it just fell on my face. I just don't want to do my duty. I want whatever my duty is. I want to do my duty. If that's pastor the Church of Brookhills for the next 40 years, I want to do that duty. If that's moved to Nepal, I want to do that duty. If that's I am or anything else, I just want to do my duty. Specifically, Romans 15, I want to see the gospel preachers not been named. And there's where I found myself in a collision of desires in different directions, a desire to pastor the church at Brook Hills, which, if I can be totally honest with you, has not gone away. And a desire to be in Nepal, which I, that's where I, my mind was most focused. I came, <laughs> we flew home, we got back on late on a Friday night, and my wife, because we hadn't been able to talk on uh, the trails, uh, just no communication, so she's just eager to hear how this trip went. And so, but I'm jet lagged, it's late on Friday night, so we're just laying there in bed, and I'm kind of scrolling through my journal, and I'm sharing things. This is exactly how it happened. I got to the point where I shared with her, maybe we need to move to Kathmandu, and then I, I fell asleep, and... Uh, <laughs> So let's just give you a picture of my patient wife. I mean, there she is with her head on my shoulders, tears streaming down her face as I've just shared with her that we're moving to Nepal maybe, and I'm snoring over her. And she wakes up the next morning, she said, uh, can we finish our conversation? Because uh, you left off with you and me and our kids in Nepal, and uh, we just pick up there and talk some more. And then... And then, okay, so you got that, and then the possibility, so this IMB picture that's out there, but in such a way that, so I'm just going to be honest, okay? Uh, not that I haven't been honest to this point, but I'm going to be a little more vulnerable. Like when I think IMB and SVC, just my first thought was, just, what's the best way to put it? A prone toward being nauseated by the nature of a large institution. Does that make sense? I hope in a respectful way. <laughs> but just, just thinking, all right, this big machine and, and a tendency that I think is common among many of us to think, well, I mean, can't we do more just kind of going at it on our own in different ways? And the Lord opened my eyes in a fresh way to the potential for that machine. And this machine that we're a part of, I mean, it's, it's breathtaking what we're a part of. 
When you think about 40,000 plus churches gathered together, coalesced together, to spend every year half a billion dollars on planting churches in North America and among the nations, buttressed by six seminaries that are training thousands of pastors and planters and ministers of the gospel with strong foundations in the Word, surrounded by a publishing arm that doesn't answer to a bottom line as much as it does to a board of trustees that has Scripture at its core and on and on, ERLC and grassroots network of associations and convictions. So not perfect by any means, but the reality is if we were to start doing stuff on our own, it'd take 100 years to be able to have the potential we got now. And if 100 years later, we have a, a ton of bureaucracy ourselves, right? So I start wrestling through. And I remember one day having lunch with one of our pastors, um, actually the same pastor, and I said, I can't see myself ever leaving. And uh, and uh, we're sitting down, and he says, he just starts walking through. Remember where we're sitting? And he starts walking with me through the challenges that are associated with, uh, with the larger picture, structure, institution. And um, he just went one by one through the challenges. And it was pretty, pretty convincing in such a way that I, I walked away thinking, all right, I need to, even if the IMB does talk to me, I don't, I don't even need to uh, think twice about it. And... It just so happened that the next day, my wife, Heather, and I were driving over to, from Birmingham to Atlanta, and we hadn't had an opportunity to debrief my conversation with this pastor, a good friend of mine. And, uh, and so I start telling her, hey, here's all the reasons why I think if they were to talk to us, we should just say, no, no, thank you. And, uh, and she, she's listening to me, talking about all these challenges, and she says, well, David, did you read your Bible this morning? And so, uh, well, yes, dear. As a matter of fact, I did. And we're walking through a reading, Bible reading plan together. And that morning, we just happened to be in Numbers 13 and 14, where the people of God are at the edge of the promised land. And they're looking at all these challenges, and they say, oh, it's too big, so we're not going to take that. And so she says, are you saying that the, the challenges you're thinking about are too big for God? Well, no, no, dear, I'm not saying that. <laughs> And so we get to Atlanta, and, uh, and right when we get there, the chairman of the search team gives me a call and says, hey, we're just trying to find out a few people who are interested. Are, are you even interested in this? And at that point, I just, I just, I kind of threw up all over him and just said, man, I'll do anything right now. I'll pastor the Church of Rakhills. I'll move to Nepal or anywhere else overseas, and I'll do, I'll do whatever the Lord wants me to do. And so, so then that process began, and, and just time with the Lord, day in and day out. I wish, I wish I could show you just the way the Word of God and prayer and times of fasting just intersected. The Lord, I'd, I'd come to, as, as we kind of progressed in that process, and just be asking, Lord, stop me from going in the wrong direction, and, and yet He'd keep pushing in that direction. I really would use the word constraining in that direction. Uh, I just through time with him, day after day after day, in a way that I found myself this summer in Dominican Republic. One, I remember one day uh, serving with some of our missionaries over there, and uh, was in uh, Gideon in Judges, and I had never asked for a fleece or anything like that, um, but it was almost like the Lord was saying, "Have I not made it clear?" To the point where I said, "Okay, 
I looked at Heather and I said, I'm about as sure about this as anything I've been. The only thing I would compare it to is when I knew I was supposed to ask you to marry me. And that's a good analogy because uh, I was only one part of that equation. Uh, so she had to say yes, right? And so, so, okay, I think as best as I know the Lord's constraining me, but I'm praying that if that's clear, then the Lord will make that clear, not just to this team, but the Lord will make that clear to the church that surrounded me. I had involved uh, the elders of our church from the very beginning of that process, and I would exhort you to involve your local church in discerning how the Spirit is constraining you in every way. I remember uh, at first I was involving elders. I thought, well, I'm not going to tell anybody. Like, this is a secret. And a friend of mine asked me, well, what do your elders think about this? And I said, well, I haven't told them. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, I mean, really? Don't you, don't you see what you see in Scripture? Churches praying and fasting together? Who knows you better than the elders in that local church? Why would you not involve them in that process? Why, why is there this custom of going around like in secret? Like, why don't we pray through this together? And, and so we did. And we had been all throughout this process. And that day in Dominican Republic where I come to this conclusion to tell Heather, uh, Okay, I think, but I'm only one part of this equation. Let's pray the Lord would make that clear in others. And I get this email. I open up my email from the chairman of our elders, and he says, Pastor, I know you may not get to read this because I was out of the country for a few days, but I just wanted to pass along a few thoughts. As all of this has sunk in a bit, and I've had the chance to pray and process it, I, as your elder chair, have grown only more convinced that should the Lord allow, you were, you were destined for this position, and it is of the Lord. And he goes on to encourage me. Uh, and the other elders in similar ways, just, David, if the Lord is in this, we want to encourage you to go quickly. I'm thinking, well, don't push me out too fast. Uh, <laughs> like, there's a little too much eagerness in your voice, <laughs> that counsel that you just gave to me. But I came back from overseas, and I met with this team in, in Denver, and just resting in the Lord. Another passage I'd memorized parts of uh, is, or, well, not parts of, Psalm 131. It's only like three verses. Um, but, uh, so <laughs> just memorize the whole thing. But, but in Psalm 131, you see this picture of resting in the Lord like a weaned child with its mother. So my soul rests in you, Psalm 131. So I just, Lord, I'm, I'm trusting you. I'm resting in you. And as we come back, we meet with this team. And, and then uh, they call me after that. And they say, we'd like to to finally move forward with, with, uh, with you potentially becoming, going to the trustees of the IMB. And at the end of that conversation, he says, you know, we're just leaning on Psalm 131. And I said, well, of course you are. <laughs> In such a way that we, we end up going up to uh, meet with the trustees. And uh, <laughs> the, the day before I meet with the trustees, my quiet time just happened to be in Romans chapter 15, Bible reading plan. Uh, and so we meet with this team one more time, and then we had taken our kids up there, and uh, our kids are eight, seven, four, and two. And so we, we took them out for uh, ice cream that night, and we said, now, I'm guessing you guys are wondering why we're in Richmond? And they said, no. And I said, well, okay, well, you should be, because, uh, and I began to share with them uh, what, uh, what we were praying through, and uh, you know, should Daddy become president of the IMB? And my eight-year-old just immediately speaks up and said, uh, President, Daddy, that's a big job. Are you sure you can handle that? 
That's a great question, son. Uh, and then he just went on. You could tell he was processing through it. I'm leaving friends behind, this or that. Uh, and he said, and this isn't just preacher talk. This is exactly what he said. He just looked at me and Heather and he said, well, Mommy and Daddy, I know that whatever, however God leads us, it will be for our good and his glory. And so, so the next night, we were going to meet with the trustees, and this same Caleb, uh, they gathered around to pray for me. And, uh, and as Caleb's praying, he's saying, God, I pray that you would make it clear if Daddy is supposed to be president of the FBI. And uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't have the heart to tell him, like, it's not really FBI. Like, <laughs> uh, he'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> My seven-year-old, uh, six at the time, I mean, one day we were getting off the plane, he said, so now there's two presidents in the United States, <laughs> President Obama and you. I said, ah, a little different, a little different. <laughs> so, so meet with the trustees, and then they, the next day they come to me and they say, we'd, we'd like to, to offer this to you. And that's all that's why, constrained by the Spirit, I found myself in that moment saying, yes. Like, I didn't go looking for this. The ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, constrained by the Spirit. And so I share all of that. Just to give you a little bit of a glimpse. And again, not to say journeys all across this room are going to look the same, but to give you these three words. One, I want to exhort you to surrender. So these are three words I just want to encourage, challenge you with, to surrender, to surrender everything in your life to Christ. I could list for you the number of reasons why I did not want to step in this role, and there is a long list. Um, and I know that in a much greater way, Paul could say the same thing. He had all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested or worse. So why go? Why do you go to places where there's so much unknown? Why do you go to places where there's risk? Why do you go to places when there's cost? And the answer is, answer is you go because God says to go and you've surrendered everything to him. This is the Christian life, right? This is not the minister's life or the seminarian's life, some super Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. The Christian life is a life of surrender. Our lives are his to spend however he wants. So we surrender everything. And this is where I want to exhort you this morning, brothers and sisters, to refuse to put any limitations on what the Lord is calling you to do or where the Lord is calling you to go. I challenge you to say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And this is where in particular I want to plead for every single person in this room, student and faculty alike, to open up your life to the possibility that God may be leading you to people who've never heard his gospel. There's two billion of them out there who've never heard what we just sang. They're plunging into hell every single day, and nobody's even told them how they can go to heaven. This cannot be tolerable to us. And it requires, then, a blank check from all of us, no strings attached to say, Lord, do you want me to go there at any point, to continually put the blank check on the table in fresh ways in our lives and say, now is the time, now is the time. There's this many people who've never heard the gospel. Knowing that, much like Paul, that task is extremely difficult and dangerous, and prison and hardships, to use language from Acts, await you. The reality is there are 6,000 unreached people groups in the world, and they're unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach, they're difficult to reach, and they're dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken. 
So will you say, I mean, you think about the peoples that are left in Syria and northern Iraq and Libya and Saudi Arabia and Iran and the mountains of Afghanistan, Pakistan. There's bombings we see in news about every day. You think about ISIS. You think about West Africa and Boko Haram. And I, I exhort you to put a blank check on the table and say in your life and your family, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. We'll go wherever you want us to go. And I know that there is potentially fear in putting that blank check on the table. And what if he calls you, your family, to one of those places? But this is where I just want to remind you, uh, if there's any fear in you when it comes to putting a blank check on the table, just remember who you're giving the blank check to. You're giving a blank check to the God who loves you and who knows far better than you what is best for your life. And you can trust him. If you can trust him to save you from eternal damnation, you can trust him to lead you on this earth. And not just to lead you on this earth, but to satisfy you every step of the way, knowing it will not be easy. He never promised Paul that, but knowing he will be worth it. Which leads to the second word I want to give you, surrender. Second, abide. Abide. So surrender to Christ and abide in Christ. So there's part of me that wishes I had a vision with a man from the IMB saying, come over here and help us. And I'm guessing some of you would like a similar thing. You'd like for God to give you a vision, God to arrange the clouds in the sky in such a way like arrow, go this way, do this thing. But normally, normally God doesn't do that. Instead, follow this, he does something better. Instead, God designs journeys like the one I just described in my life to cause us to daily seek after him over every step of the journey. In my life, I found myself praying, fasting regularly, seeking, reading the word in a fresh way, saying, God, what do you want me to do? I just want to follow you. Don't let me go in the wrong direction. I just want to do what you want me to do. And the result is, you know what the result is of that kind of praying and fasting and seeking and reading the word? The result is, I love the Lord far more today than I did a year ago. I love him so much. And I've walked in sweet intimacy with him that I'm not sure if I'd have had if I'd have gotten the vision at the very beginning. So God takes us on a journey, takes our families on journeys, takes us with our wives and husbands on journeys where we seek him and he leads and he guides our thoughts as we abide in him. And he does all this because he loves us. He's given you and me as his children something much better than specific direction in certain decisions. He's given us his spirit. And he's called us to daily to surrender to him, put it all on the table, our lives, our families, our future, and then walk with him, be in his word, spend time with him in prayer, fast before him, realize the goal is not a specific position or direction. The goal is God. Knowing him and loving him and adoring him and walking with him and finding the deepest satisfaction of our souls in the process. This is an active abiding in him. It, it's, it's not a passive surrender, it's an active surrender. So it's not we surrender and then sit back. It's we surrender and we, we follow him and we make disciples right where we live. We get plugged into a local church where we're serving. We lead with the capacities that God has entrusted us to lead. We do all these things. And here's the beauty. I'm just convinced that if we surrender to him and abiding in him, that God is not going to let us go astray. He loves us. 
The Father in heaven loves you so much. He wants his mission to be accomplished in your life more than you do. He's put his very spirit in you to see his mission accomplished. So the third word, surrender to him, abide in him, and rest in him. Surrender, abide. And when you're surrendered to Christ and abiding in Christ, there is a rest that you can find like a weaned child with its mother. Knowing no matter what happens, I mean, there's days now, like I've been in this thing six months right now, and just days where it's surreal, kind of step back and be like, what's going on? How did this happen? And uh, my dreaming, and depending on the day, it's either a good dream or a bad dream. Uh, but there's a rest in the middle of it all because you know that the God of the universe has your life in the palm of his hands. And so I encourage you, in your life, your heart, Put a blank check on the table. Abide in him and rest. And isn't it awesome to think about the creativity of God and all the different ways he will constrain by his spirit people in this room to different places and positions all over the world for our good, for the spread of his gospel, and for the glory of his great name. Let me pray. God, may it be so. And thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the way you love us and lead us. And I pray, I pray for the brothers and sisters in this room in particular, God, that days to come, you would help them, enable them by your grace to surrender, to die daily to themselves. Help us all die daily to ourselves, to abide in you. And as we do, to rest. Use us, we pray, to make your glory known. Your gospel, particularly among those who've never heard, whether we're leading the church here or planning the church there. God, we pray for the day when we will not be talking about unreached peoples anymore. We will talk about the return of our King and you getting all the glory you are due. So help us to be faithful from this day until that, to walk in step with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.